You're listening to Rocks Across the Pond, the curling podcast that goes around the globe looking for the best stories in the world's coolest sport. We have curling news and views for everyone, whether you're playing in your Thursday league or following your favorite teams on tour. Now here are your hosts, Ryan McGee and our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Thank you, Alex Friedman, and yes, welcome to Rocks Across the Pond. It's a curling podcast coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. My name is Ryan McGee, and joining me from Southampton, England, is Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, we are not sticking to sports today. No, I think, well, obviously everyone knows what's going on in the world right now, and uh, you and I had a pretty long conversation back and forth for uh, just to kind of respond to the murder of George Floyd, uh, the protests, the uprisings, the Black Lives Matter movement, uh, and so we were kind of stuck about what to do, so uh, we ended up deciding to reach out to Adriana Camarena, who was um, a guest on... Uh, a previous podcast. She's from the Mexican Curling Federation. And, but she was also, she mentioned there, a civil rights activist and a, um, so who've been working in the Bay Area on issues around police brutality and helping families who've been victims of police violence. And so uh, we felt she'd be a good guest to reach out to to talk about, first of all, the, the issues around police, policing in the US and police killing. Uh, but secondly, also issues about race, both in America. But we also want to turn it back towards the, towards the end of the conversation to asking, I think, some hard questions that perhaps the curling community has been avoiding about race and uh, curling. And so uh, we've kind of invited her onto the, the show to talk with us today about that. Yep. And we were very fortunate that she agreed to come on with us. And it was an amazing conversation. So let's get to it. Here is... Jonathan and I talking with Iriana Camarena. So, um, I don't know. I, I was wondering if, if we're going to start this. Um, I think we should talk about why we're here and, and why I'm here. <laughs> why are we here? <laughs> why are we here? I think, well... I mean, I think it's different for all of us. I mean, so I'm, I guess for me, George Floyd's death hit um, like well, close to home in a certain sense, quite literally, because I, I lived in the neighborhood where his murder happened um, in Minneapolis for four plus years. Uh, so he, he was killed at the corner of 38th in Chicago. And I basically lived about seven blocks away from there. Uh, so it was like right, right in my neighborhood. And then I'm living in England now. And so I just get up the day after and I see like, there's a target being looted in Minneapolis. I'm like what I'm like, that's my target, right? That was like the target that I shopped at. And so it kind of, it, it flew me for a loop in a lot of ways. Um, like first, you know, the immediate realizations I lived in that neighborhood for four plus years and like the police never ha- harassed me. Like there's no chance that I could, that I ever would be killed by a police officer. Um, when people talk about white privilege, I think that's that's it. Um, and then to see the protests, um, the rioting, the damage to the neighborhood, uh, and then to see the 
the National Guard come in and just clamp down. It's and I've got a lot of friends still in that area, and it's like it was basically three traumas in a row, right? The murder, the the protests, the damage from the riots, and then the 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 army coming in. I think was just like people were just what is going on to basically be occupied. Um, so you know, I think that was part of it, and then I guess the questions like Ryan and I try, are trying to keep the podcast going, and so. Um, I mean, for us, I think there's a couple of points you could we could just acknowledge quickly and then move on and talk back to curling. But I just don't think anyone cares about talking about curling. Then we kind of talked about what else could we do, and then we remembered that when we'd had you on the podcast before, you said that one of the things you did was as a kind of an attorney and a civil rights activist in the Bay Area, you'd been working with families who'd been killed, who'd had members of their family killed by the police. So, uh, like I guess Ryan emailed you last week and we're lucky that you're kind of able to join us and kind of share your reflections about that and i think also i think partly talk about these issues but also hopefully a bit more in depth but then i think also maybe use us a chance to think about race and curling because i think you know uh, as you said in one of the emails curling's the whitest sport you know and I, I actually have to agree with that it's a very white uh segregated sport um so if we're not going to talk about those issues now, I, I don't know when we will. So we may as well do it today, I think. And as as for me, it, it's just the last two weeks, I've just had this feeling that I can and should be doing more than I am. And it's, you know, we have we have this podcast and it's got, you know, it, it's got hundreds of listeners, definitely not thousands of listeners, but the people who do listen to us are going to be the kind of people that do need to hear this message and do need to realize why we are trying to affect change and why we need change. And then not just how can you take that and apply it to your own community, but how you can apply it to the curling community and make the curling community more inclusive because it goes just beyond you know, your, the term community goes beyond just like where you live. Your community is, you know, the group of people that you're interacting with most often. And for me, it's my family, uh, my friends and my curling club and the conversations that you're having in, in those three are all going to be different. And all three of them are important, I think. Okay. Um, so I'm, I want to offer a phrase that comes from the anti-racist movement and I'll apply it to myself and I'll tell you why in a second. It says white silence is violence. And what it means is that if you are not speaking out on these issues of structural racism and casual racism, uh, we are com complicit in, in, in recreating a system of oppression. And so this type of structural racism moves around our circles. And I think that's, that's why I'm here. I'm part of a curling community. My name is Adriana Camarena. I'm Mexican. And as of last year, I'm also a U.S. citizen. And this is my community. The curling community is part of my community. And when we broomstack, we have opportunities 
to talk about what's going on in the world. And so I think we're, we're, gonna, we're having a little broomstick here about uh, race and curling um, and the fact that black, black lives matter. And the reason why I said that I will apply this phrase to myself is because as a Mexican, um, I am someone with a lighter skin tone than other Mexicans. I am taller than some of uh, my Mexican compatriots. Um, I'm also, I have signifiers of, of success, like a degree from Stanford Law School. And, and, you know, other advantages that other people of color do not. And so I, especially in Mexico, do have some, uh, do have some privileges. It's more complicated in the U.S., depending on how people see me. But I use my privileges, my advantages, to stand by people who suffer disproportionate uh, impacts of racism. That's why I'm here. That's good. So do we want to talk about Black Lives Matter first and then and, and kind of think about I think we, we asked you initially a couple of questions. Um, and so I think first and foremost, I think the first question we had is kind of how can we help? Right. So what what can we by we I think we mean Ryan and me and then other people listening to the podcast and our, our audience is probably mostly white. Just looking at the demographics of curling, it normally is people who have a university degree or above. Uh, normally, have a very kind of come from a very um, middle class or upper middle class background. Uh, like, so how do you think individuals from this background in the curling community can help right now uh, beyond, say, putting um, a blackout on their social media post or saying "Black Lives Matters"? And how can they use their skills to help, or or how can they help through the organizations that they're members of? They're all interesting questions. Um, and I think the first, first thing I want to invite, kind of like moving out through concentric circles, is that we all need to do a bit of accounting with ourselves about our own set of privileges and how they intersect in our different environments. Because if we can't, can't do that, <laughs> It's going to be very difficult to have conversations around race and, and how they impact our everyday lives. So that's, I would say, a first step. And if you, and there are right now probably uh, many articles that you could go search and look for books that might be helpful aids in trying to start to talk about race. In fact, that's uh, one of them is actually called that. So you want to talk about race. Um, so that's something else we can do. But in the context of the protests, the recent protests over the death of George, the killing, the murder of George Floyd by Minnesota police officers. When you first asked me that question, I, I was thinking of many things one can do. And my first reaction is the best thing you can do is make a homemade sign and walk out and join your city in a protest. So uh, what do you think about those first three? We can go to two other reformist ideas later. 
uh, in terms of making a, doing a pro doing a sign, making a protest, or about making an account of our privilege? I mean, I think they all sound good to me. I think the most important thing that you can do is kind of have that inner reflection like you were talking about and you have you have to change the way that you think about the world and and see the world and because if you can't if you can't acknowledge that there is a problem then i i don't know how we start and i know that there are people out there that just won't even acknowledge that there's a problem and i think that slowly but surely those people are becoming more and more in the minority and i'm seeing i'm seeing people that maybe i i didn't necessarily think were capable of change starting to change their minds about this thing and that that gives me a little bit of hope on all this and it makes me want to it makes me want to do more it makes me want to it makes me want to be more involved and think, okay, what, what skills do I have that I can, that can, can I put to use? You know, I'm, I'm just a marketing guy, but like what, what things that I'm capable of doing can I use to help further this cause and help affect change? And it's, I mean, if it's as simple as writing your congressman, then, you know, you need to do research on, okay, what do I need to be asking for if I'm going to sit down and write this letter? What do I need to be asking for as someone who wants, who recognizes that there, there are problems that need change and, and, and it needs to happen now instead of, you know, we, we went through this as a country five, six years ago and very little changed and it feels a little different now. And I think we're, I think we're closer to, to having some positive changes. Mm-hmm. And when you mean five years ago, are you talking about the Ferguson uprisings? Yeah, Fergus, Ferguson, and then New York. Because when when Eric I, I remember those, and I also remember when Eric Garner was killed. Because I remember the pro. I I worked for I worked for a basketball arena at the time, and when the when the I can't breathe protests started happening around the country, there was one at our arena. And so it was during a country music concert. I remember I was standing there watching the protests with a coworker and the coworker said, I don't understand why they're here at a country music concert. And I said, well, who do you think needs to hear their message? That's why they're here. Mm-hmm. And I, I also kind of want to say, yes, we can, we can write to Congress people right now. There's a bill that the Democrats are trying to, pass and we can talk about that too um there's a significant movement at the local level also in different um in different councils to defund the police we can support those movements too but i think there's also i i don't want to let us off the hook especially when we talk about being part of a community that we have to get comfortable about talking among us when we see something that that didn't sit well that that's that is that people may not be aware that they're project they're they're creating environments that are racist that are that exclude um and 
I've experienced it in the curling world just because there's probably there's not that much opportunity sometimes, but more around um, misogynist comments. But you, but I think as we go talk about this, we might find that there are ways that people, it's, it's uh, the environment might not be welcoming to people of color to join. And we have to think about ways in which our behavior needs to change so that, so that, that, that space becomes more welcoming and more supportive. And is it, is it as simple as calling out when someone is making a joke or using language that they probably wouldn't use in mixed company? I think that's, uh, I, I would certainly do it. Kind of think about like, ah, oh, you know, what's this about? What, what do you mean by, what do you mean by that? But it's not only about naming and shaming. Mm-hmm. I think as, um, now we're getting into the curling club, but as, um, but as environments, clubs, schools, uh, wherever we are, <laughs> uh, we have to think about um, what allows some of us to join um, uh, the sport of curling and uh, what barriers may exist for other people to, to join. And it might be that somebody looks into the clubhouse and just sees an environment where mostly white people are present. And it can, just by that, it may become challenging. So there could be steps to make sure that uh, a fun day at the curling club is fun for everybody. Yeah, I mean, I'll say, I, mean, I think maybe I come up, I've been curling a long time. <laughs> so I, I actually curled, I started curling in um, Montreal West Curling Club. And uh, so much, you, you don't know Montreal geography at all, but Montreal West was a fairly affluent, white, um, English-speaking suburb just to the west end of Montreal. Um, and back then, the divide was just, it wasn't just as much a racial divide. There was also, in the 90s, a particularly heated uh, kind of, politics between French and English. Um, and that club has a long history. It goes back to like 1912, I think, like early early 1900, maybe 1920. Um, and women weren't allowed to be members, full members of the club up until 1998. Women were allowed to play in separate leagues, but they couldn't actually have a full voting membership or participate on the board. Um, there were very few adult, if any adult members who are kind of visible minorities. And in fact, for a city that was majority French, there was actually very few Francophone kind of members at the time. And that was actually quite explicit. Like the old guard back then and there, they actually wanted, um, uh, they basically wanted a white male, well-to-do professional white collar curling club. Right. And so they structured the club that way. And I, I think I, I've gone back lately and it's like certainly a lot more diverse, but not not very diverse. But I think a lot of the traditional curling clubs, the dedicated facilities that have a long history, actually have a long history of exclusion. Like they're, they're clubs for a reason. They, their people set up a club because they wanted some people in and didn't want other people in. Right. Um, and so I think that in many ways kind of shaped and structured the sport. Like a country club environment. Mm-hmm. Where, yeah, yeah. Where it's not only just about where where it is about class, and by nature it ends up being about race. Um, yeah, I mean you had to you had to be sponsored in order to join the club. Like a member had to sponsor you, 
which is, you know, a way of making sure that basically making sure that certain people are kept in and other people are kept out. Right. So that's an excellent, excellent, I, I think, summary of a, a lot of our environments of um, where somebody can access and this sort of, I mean, it's one of the reasons why we're possibly talking about this also. And mo a lot of people went out into the streets is because of COVID-19 that a lot of people haven't had the distraction, distraction of sports and everyday activities so that we can think on this and realize that that type of structural racism is pervasive in many of our environments, whether they're schools or uh, our country club curling. Um, and, and also just acknowledging that it's an expensive sport, like many sports, once you get to practicing them at a certain level, mm -hmm. no? So how, like, I think if we're talking about suggestions for our clubs, I think it, it would need to um, have specific dedicated attention to figuring out how do you, um, especially if you come from a country club kind of environment, how do you make our club more accessible to other people? And I know the San Francisco Bay Area Club is, 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 is aiming to increase its diversity, but for sure it continues to be a more wealthier club uh, where a lot of people from the tech industry are, are uh, curlers. So I guess that's, that's one part of the conversation, but since we, we, we went pretty fast to the curling and race. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I want to bring something up, uh, something that I thought was really interesting and curling USA made a comment on its, on June 3rd, it, it posted, um, where is it? It posted uh, a statement. It said, Black Lives Matter, hashtag Black Lives Matter. It's a pivotal time in America. Trying to find the right words in these challenging times is important, but equally important is trying to do the right things meaningful endeavors that change the trajectory in a way that provokes systemic change. We will listen, we will learn, we will advocate, and we will stand by our brothers and sisters who have been unfairly and wrongfully judged based on nothing more than the color of their skin. And I'm bringing this up because I think it was an important and overdue statement. And what happened, I, I don't know how many clubs did this, but soon after, it was posted at 6 a.m., Soon after, the San Francisco Bay Area Club made a similar statement, and I believe other clubs have done so too. So I, I, I want to commend USA Curly for putting that statement out because it does put, I mean, it, it's Minnesota is the, is, is the heart of, of, in some ways, the heart of curling in the USA, no? But it puts, mm -hmm. it does yeah. make us need to listen and learn and advocate and stand by uh, brothers and sisters um, who have been suffered the brunt of racial discrimination. What do you think about that start? I think you had a good point in the, the way you phrased it was like USA curling was, it was, it was almost like they were giving clubs permission to go ahead and start, start making the change in your community that you need to 
you phrased it a lot better than I ever could. <laughs> yeah, when, when we were talking earlier about this, is I felt that when the statement was made, um, because it is a high the hierarchy in curling, other uh, clubs felt that are dependent in many ways on curling policies and curling monies that come from USA Curling felt they had either permission. Uh, you know, they, they finally, it was, they could speak on a controversial topic without consequences um, mm -hmm. or, or that they felt that it was time to, to shift in, in, you know, follow suit, whichever was the sentiment that has provoked these, uh, this, these new statements, I think it's important. And the reason why I'm also bringing it up, and it's also because I think we have to talk about it is that there was a very controversial title to a movie made by the amazing gold-winning USA team. And I believe that it wasn't the original title to this film, but it did become, um, it, it was called Make Curling Great Again. And I remember at the time, and um, I, I can't remember exactly when it came out. Do you guys remember? Yeah, it yeah, was. This was last summer. Yeah, this last, was last summer. Last summer. Yeah, about a year ago. And where yeah. it was incredibly yeah. tone deaf is in trying to, you know, make a quip, make a joke. Um, mm -hmm. They they didn't want to acknowledge whoever um, the producers of this film that the phrase "Make America Great Again" has become a vessel, a phrase code for a white supremacist sentiment that kind of harks back to an era where, um, you know, the nuclear uh, white family um, had a very good life with a white picket fence while it was a time in America where life was pretty bad, it, it, horrendous, segregationist for um, mm -hmm. uh, especially African-Americans, but people uh, of color of, of many origins. And so I think this moment of listening, learning, and advocating is a very important shift in our perception of what we're going to do. And I brought it up because at the time I did pressure my club and saying, what are you guys going to, what do you think about this? Because a lot of people are speaking out individually as individuals on the, on the topic. But the furthest the San Francisco Bay Area Club went at the moment was to just restate their diversity policy which is different than saying black lives matter. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. At, at the time I thought that it was something that they just did to try and get attention for the film. And regrettably we didn't say more about that. Although I don't, I don't think we really even mentioned the movie itself in any of our shows. Uh, but the person that was really at the forefront of speaking up about how divisive calling that film, that title was, was um, the guy who runs the twine time blog. He goes by twine time on Twitter, but he runs a curling blog and he was very vocal about how divisive that was and how much of a mistake it was to title it that. And it's, it, it's a phrase that unfortunately has been co-opted by um, some extremely, an extremely right-wing sect of our country who are, um, who do have 
very uh, racist tendencies. Um, I'm having to be very careful in how I phrase things here, but uh, but yeah, but extremely right wing sects that that have a lot of racist beliefs have co-opted that slogan um, as their own slogan, basically. And I don't think that it, I, I don't think that it had any business uh, being in the title of a curling movie. Neither do I. Especially when we're a sport that is looked at as an extremely white sport. Like why feed into, why feed into that characterization? Yeah, it was a weird. I didn't. It was a very weird title. I remember. The, I mean, I think we were not recording last summer when the, when it kind of blew up. Uh, the guy who runs Twine Time rightfully called it out. I think the girls actually called out because I also remember there's a bit of a brouhaha that Johnny Moe wore a mega hat at like a slam or something, and they kind of called him out for that. So that there, had, I mean, and it's we shouldn't be that surprised. I think that like having curled a lot in Minnesota, um, it's not only skews white; it also does skew Republican, right? Uh, like certainly the St. Paul Curling Club did when I was there. Um, so there, there are a lot of Trump voters, let's be blunt, who, uh, who curl in certain parts of the U.S. And so I think for that market, it may not have been that offensive. Um, and they may not have, I think they just didn't realize, uh, it, either they didn't realize that it was offensive or some of them actually are just kind of outright racist or um, kind of not, not welcoming. I think the other one that was kind of on social curling social media that was kind of clearly divisive because there's so many curling football fans is the Colin the Colin Kaepernick um, kind of taking a knee during the national anthem. I remember that kind of also really dividing the curling community. And and if there's any kind of sign for hope, I'd say in the last two weeks, a lot of people who I think skew conservative and had been quite vocally against Colin Kaepernick. Oh, I saw a lot kind of post George Floyd come out and say, I've actually kind of realized I was wrong about that stance. I understand why he's taking a knee. Like it's, it was actually, and I think it's powerful for someone to actually get up on social media and admit they were wrong about something as much as that. So that, that at least gave me a bit of hope to see, see those kinds of conversations happening. I I've seen that too, Jonathan. And I, I, I think that one of the worst things we can do is when someone does change their mind on something like that. And that was the biggest problem that we had at the time was no one was listening to what Kaepernick was actually trying to say. Everyone just went on assuming that he was actually protesting the military or he was protesting the flag. And that was absolutely not what that protest was about. And everyone refused to listen to him. And that's part of the reason why we are, we are here where we are today is because no one would listen to him. Um, but the the people who have changed their mind on that and realized that they were wrong to condemn those protests, what we don't want to do is ridicule them. You know, we want to we want to encourage that kind of mind change in people. So when when people do kind of realize that that they had it wrong three, four, five years ago, like accept them and just say, you know it's about time. And I think that's yeah. where I was saying that conversations between people of the same race are really powerful at this moment where it's, it's probably better coming from you to say, that's really great. Right. Because my, my Facebook feed looks mm -hmm. different. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I imagine it does. 
<laughs> you know, it's kind of like that, you know, NFL band <laughs> bandwagoners, you know, but but the truth is that we I I you know, we Kaepernick being from the Bay Area also we've been behind number 7 for a long long time. And um and he's been a, a part of the community here supporting Black Lives Matter for years uh since then. So I I applaud no I think I want to say different I I am I am just as floored as you are that so many people are coming out and so I've had to kind of meditate on on why is it because usually I'm like along with with the families that lonely troops outside the police station with our signs saying you know justice no peace um no racist police and we're out there and it's just a handful and then the moment passes and then we pop up in and out in different actions. But this level of activism, this level of support and speaking out, I think it's really heartfelt. It's earnest. And it means that people have been thinking on this for a while. And who I really want to bring to the forefront are the young people, who the young people of color who with many educators have continued to work, have continued to organize, have continued to articulate um, what what police brutality means in their lives. And to this call out for defund the police is something that has been um, brought forth for a long time. I know that Alicia Garza and the other woman who founded Black Lives Matter have also made a better and bigger effort in the years since they founded that movement, to communicate better about what that means. Because that statement mm -hmm. in its entirety, when you think about it, what it says, all lives can't matter until black lives matter. So this is that's the full statement that we have to take in. And that's why if we want to live in a free and just society, we have to stand by those for whom this has not been a free and just society. So do you, I mean, I think one of our conversations we had by email was about different political options. And I, th I think, I mean, I, my Facebook feed is kind of a weird one because I'm like an academic. So I've got a lot of lefty academics who frequently scream, abolish the police on, uh, <laughs> on social media. And then the other half is people who are like Colin Kaepernick, uh, you know, is worse than Hitler for taking a knee at a football game. Um, and so it's, it's like, it's, it's, so sometimes I got a very disjunction few, but one of the things I realize is that a call like abolish the police or defund the police to someone who's just gone from thinking Colin Kaepernick's enemy of America for kneeling to finally seeing why he was doing that might be a very shocking, um, bit of like political whiplash. Right. So it, within the Black Lives Matter space, it seems like there's a couple of different movements going on. So it's like, uh, it's, what's his name? It's DeRay McKesson, who's the, the leader of Campaign Zero. And he seems like a bit more of the reformist branch, right? And then there's this more abolitionist stance. So what, what do you think? Can you get to take a bit of time to kind of explain the two different positions to us and what they entail and what the tensions are? Sure. And I think um, you might talk about um, and I and I've been a, a proponent from uh, also gradualism from time to time. Like, okay, this is going to take some time, so let's just like let's see what how far ahead we can get. Um, and so this idea that you will look at the different er, um, 
the, you will look at the functions of police by the different existing areas in which they operate and, um, and try to create specific reforms that will make things better, make them less racist, right? Um, less, uh, make sure that they impact people so disproportionately, people of color. So, I, you know, I'll take the example I know best. In um, 2016, reform was promised in San Francisco. And at the time, um, with Obama and the White House, they had a really significant and important project, um, the, which was a task force on policing for the 21st century. And with the Department of Justice, they created a series of, uh, it was called the COPS Reform um, because they had a because of the community-oriented policing services that that led it, and uh, they, they they promoted um, specific areas to look into reform, which involved um, you know a, a bias, the culture of bias, uh, use of force, um, uh, hiring and firing uh, practices. And just a series of areas where you look at police. And so the problem is that, and it's very demoralizing because I sat at the reform tables for, for a while, is that these reforms are actually um, not that new. They've been proposed for a very long time. And what happens is when we live in like these bureaucratic, slow-moving um, institutions, we're, we're embedded in them, is that usually these reforms get lost in the weight of that bureaucracy. So I am actually incredibly enthused by what happened in Minneapolis. Like I am, I am looking, I'm, I'm taking note about the fact that the, the council, the city council in, in Minneapolis passed a pledge to dismantle the Minnesota Police Department. So that moves in the direction of... Um, of uh, abolishing police in the sense that, and by abolish, I want you to think about the word also abolish slavery. When we say abolish police, what we're really talking about is abolish this institution that as hard as we've tried, seems not to break away from the structures, uh, the structural racism that it's, that it's embedded in. So I think people should be less afraid of these reforms. I, you know, and I should I should mention something here. One of the things I do um, is that I actually my my studies uh, at Stanford Law School, my PhD in Stanford Law School is in rule of law reform. It is about how we move towards policies that are both about respect for the law. Uh, uh, belief in legal systems, but legal systems that need to be embedded in social justice. So um, this is usually, you, this is the area of reform in the U.S., which I think is actually most parallel to some of the reforms that I see in Latin America. Usually I work in Latin America. So I have some, I have some idea of what I'm talking about. <laughs> so don't, don't freak out. It's not like tomorrow there's going to be no police. This is bureaucracy moves really, really slow. What it's a call for is for community led processes to rethink what police do in our communities and how we can substitute some of those processes so that we don't have an institution that by nature is, um, you know, tends to it's 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 tinted glasses are about 
um, looking for crime, criminality, uh, investigation, and and tending to see the people who are poor and and black and brown as those people who are most likely to be committing those crimes, and then for reacting to them differently, right? So. What this uh, call out is to actually rethink mm-hmm. the different functions of police and see where we might think it, we we might want to. I, I even like the word um, divest from the police, like defund, uh, divest, and invest in other communities uh, mm-hmm. and co- community mm-hmm. processes. So I like you know there was these little memes going on online that I like, and one says you are experiencing a mental health crisis and afraid. Imagine. You call 311 and a first responder trained in mental health comes to your door. One hour later, you're in a safe place with your consent with plans for follow-up care. So that's kind of like trying to provoke our imaginations, no? Uh, You don't realize it, but your brake lights aren't working. Imagine a city employee signals for you to pull over and says, hey, how about I replace those lights for you right here so no one gets hurt? An hour later, both lights work and you're at home. And isn't that public safety? Um, so the question is, uh, how can it, you know, we can have other examples around domestic violence where it's very complicated domestic violence, because what you need, especially um, as it affects a uh, majority woman, is to think about how you're going to extricate yourself from a situation of violence where you're maybe economically and, and, and in many ways, psychologically dependent to an abuser. So those processes need something else than police showing up to you, for you. And there could be some emergencies where you might think, oh, actually, you mm-hmm. know, while shooter on the hill, uh, well, maybe you do need some type of response to that different in nature than what I've been talking to. Uh, but it also is a call t- to demilitarize the police, which has incrementally. There's a book by Alex Vital called The End of Policing that he has been talking for a while about how incrementally we saw police become more like a military force. And I think it was you, Jonathan, who spoke about seeing the occupation of your neighborhood. Um, And that is what we're talking about when we talk about um, defunding the police. And and really thinking it's and I I love even the dismantling I like the dismantling better than the defunding because what we're actually as they are doing in Minneapolis, which is about talking about how we're going to create a new and different structure which is community led and community informed around public security and public health issues and will it take a lot of discussions? It's going to take a huge amount of discussions. Might we be disappointed in then? It could be as we've been in disappointed in many other reforms. But I think the intent, that pillar behind this is because they understand that some, there's a convergence of interest in this topic. There's, uh, we've had nearly four years of a maniac uh, spewing racist slogans at us so that people are really tired also about having that be the dialogue. And, you know, just as in many ways, somebody was saying to me the other day, it's not about uh, black and white, but uh, against anti-racism. <laughs> Can we all be anti-racist? So that those are something to some of thoughts. And a, a lot of things that you just talked about are things that I will admit that until a couple weeks ago I was completely ignorant on, um, in terms of how we need to rethink the way we look at policing 
and how honestly we we asked to we asked the police to do a lot of things that they probably shouldn't have to do and they're kind of we just default to oh let the police deal with it, deal with it and there's a lot of there's a lot of situations where there there is a there is another answer that isn't call the police um, another thing that I, I'm embarrassed to admit that I had no idea on. And honestly, if you getting to think about it, it goes to education and how education can really help all of these situations is up until two years ago, two, two and a half years ago, I had no idea what the term redlining was. I had never heard of it. I had no idea how the history of redlining and those policies have kind of led to what we've seen now with basically with, with seg legalized segregation basically in the u.s and how and you might want to say what redlining is because some people might not know um so it is redlining was and it's it took me a while to understand it because it is it's really it's kind of a complicated it's kind of a detailed um thing but it's basically policies put in place where the government would basically draw a red line around certain communities and make it harder for people who lived in those communities to say to do things from getting bank loans to getting building permits and more often than not it was minority majority minority communities that were redlined to where they weren't going to get bank loans um, they weren't going to get loans to start their own business they weren't going to be able to improve their home value and that's kind of led to modern day segregation basically right and i think it's worth saying that this redlining was done by the the Fed, um uh the housing and urban development branch of the U S government, which looked at neighborhoods everywhere mm-hmm. and said, you know, and these, uh, you know, parts of these neighborhood, which either were poor work, uh, uh, working class neighborhoods or predominantly minority neighborhoods, they would say in these areas, uh, we, we, I mean, you, we will not support, uh, mortgages or credits for buying property here. So, after World War World War um, Two, what happened is that many people who benefited from the GI Bill were like there was a like a white um, many things happened, mm-hmm. but the white flight from many of these neighborhoods to suburbs where they could get those credits. And what happened is that a lot of na- um, uh, people of color who already lived in those neighborhoods um, and uh, people of color moved into those neighborhoods where there was white flight. These became the inner city neighborhoods of. Uh, of our of our cities, and there were other practices uh, around housing, um, including public housing, that created like these kind of like segregated, um, really desperate situations for people. Um, that impacts uh, the level of uh, uh, capacity of schools in that neighborhood. That further. In, creates an environment where you might be prone to getting criminal, um, you you will be policed and get criminal records, uh, which in, in impact your life forever. And so if you haven't read already Michelle Alexander's book, the, um, I'm going to mess up the title. Um, it's kind of called the, the next Jim Crow or the, the current Jim Crow um, about criminal justice in the, in the U.S., she kind of lays out the fact how also our criminal justice system has impacted the lives of black people, especially, but people of color disproportionately. 
so that you see, for example, in San Francisco that has less than a 6% population of Black people, they make up something like 80% of people in the jailhouse. And so that speaks to who is impacted by criminal mm -hmm. policies. So we're back to policing, no? But all of these policies are interrelated. And this is when we talk about structural racism, which is beyond our one-to-one -one conversations about whether we just said something mean to somebody of a different, cult, uh, a different race. I mean, we need to be talking together about how we're going to dismantle racism in our communities. Yeah, it's, a, it's about education. Educate yourself. Educate your kids. Never stop learning. Um, one of the most, I, I kind of, I went into it blind and it wound up being just one of the most just draw drop, jaw dropping things that I've seen was the documentary 13th on Netflix. Um, I, I learned so much during that documentary. Um, and I highly recommend it to, to anybody who's, who's listening to us today, but it's, it explores exactly those topics that you were talking about just now, how, They've used the criminal justice system and they've used prisons to almost legalize slavery again. Yeah, I was going to add um, something that I, so when you're talking about redlining and Adriana was kind of talking about the, the role of the housing and urban development, the thing to know about that mini, that that neighborhood of Minneapolis, so the, the third precinct, it was redlined. Um, if you understand the city's geography, it's basically a neighborhood carved out between two interstates. And so it's I-35, so the same I-35 that runs through Oklahoma City, Ryan, 35W, so the one that splits off and goes to the Minneapolis side, and then 94, which is the, the kind of east-west interstate. And when they were putting the interstates in, the city planners made a very explicit thing to say, we're going to carve out this neighborhood. And... Um, a couple of things happened in 1950. So the interstate system went through. The second thing that mm -hmm. happened was there was a large relocation of Plains Indians and for indigenous peoples from Minnesota and the Dakotas into public housing. So there's like a, there's like actually a, a, one of the largest urban Indian populations in that neighborhood, all in public housing. And then a lot of public housing was built up in that neighborhood. And the third police district is there's a there's an article in the Minneapolis Star Tribune the other day talking about how the third police district has historically, at least since the 1970s, been seen as the dumping ground for problem cops. That basically if cops had, and George Chauvin uh, apparently had like a long, long list of complaints, like 14 or 15 kind of investigations. And so one of the things Minneapolis has historically done is dumped the police that are the bad cops, if you will, all into that district. So there's a long history of just how the city was drawn and drawn up, how the police department was organized, how the, you know, different kind of policies around indigenous people, different policies around black people and around the kind of other communities of color were kind of concentrated in the, in that area of Minneapolis mm -hmm. quite explicitly. And about, yeah. And as you said, with the interstate system, Jonathan, one of the, around the same time that I learned about redlining policies is when I learned you know, in my thirties, I should not have, it, I sh it should not have taken until my thirties for me to learn that basically every major city used, um, Eisenhower's interstate, um, interstate system to either divide, um, my majority minority communities or just use eminent domain to tear them down. And that's something that happened in Richmond. We had a very thriving, 
um, majority black community called Navy Hill in Richmond, Virginia, where I live, that they used eminent domain to build I-35 or I-95 right through it. You know, and I could give the same similar example in San Francisco where you have, um, you know, the Western edition. It used to be called the Harlem of the West. Uh, Maya Angelou was part of that community. It was a, a vibrant um, cultural district, uh, black cultural district, and it got demolished, torn down um, by by redevelopment uh, monies that thought that, uh, you know, that these communities were a fair game to to create different type of housing. Um, but after that war, that neighborhood was uh, demolished, um, you had uh, the Mission District actually opposing that type of uh, where I live, which is a the traditionally Latino, uh, but also a working class and general neighborhood. And they, they refused those policies because they had a history of organizing and continued to be kind of like strongly opposed. But this was also a red line district. You also have the Bayview Hunters Point, And they also, that also was a red line industrial um, residential area, which, was, which is uh, San Francisco's traditional black community also. And all of these are also the training grounds for rookies, especially the Bayview and the Mission in San Francisco. And you, I mean, there's um, there was uh, mm. what's called the Hunters uh, Hunter uh, the Bayview's Hunters Point uh, uprising or riot more than 50 years ago, where for days there they had a clash with police after a young man was killed fleeing the police, and so you have these kind of incidents where. But in 2018, here in the mission, when they had a, a, a new wave of recruits as part of the reform process, you had a young teenager, uh, Jesus Adolfo Delgado, who was hiding in the trunk of a car, got surrounded by police, and they shot him with 99 bullets. He wasn't even out of the car. They, they insisted he had a gun. But it, they just freaked out and all shot at once. And these are all rookies. So they become the training grounds for rookie police. But they also become places where, where mostly people of color are impacted. And you never see, you, I have not, there has yet to be a case in San Francisco where an officer is indicted um, for criminal charges. So that also feeds into generation trauma and distrust around the police, and 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 it's not only distrust; it's, it's justified distrust, <laughs> and and disadvantages that come with being policed often and frequently as a young person of color. Like I have, I can't tell you how many times I'm walking down the street and suddenly I see these kids being sat down on the ground by police officers. I just stand there, pick up my phone, and I'm just not going to leave. <laughs> I'm just going to stand there and film. I'm just going to stand there and film. And it does change police behavior. It absolutely does. So that's another thing you can do. Just stand there. And they might say, you got to take a step back. You can't be on our way. Sure. Take a step back. Keep on filming. I mean, the woman who filmed that video, I think she's like 18. I, I, I can't, like the courage you have to have to do that, first of all. And I mean, it, it, it was that video that, I mean, changed everything, right? It's like the fact you can't watch nine minutes of a cop just choking a guy to death uh, and not have and it the, change you. And, right? the, and the fact that the violence is almost so casual, yeah. you know, it's like with the it's smug. Yeah. And the other three and, officers and I, didn't care. Or they're used to it. 
they've done this so many times yeah. that they're used to it. It just happened to be that this time they killed this man and he, they were caught on video. But, you know, there are, I, I can't tell you how many cases there are that are so similar, including Eric Garner's, but locally many who are not filmed. And so the other issue here that we're talking about, and it has to do with the bill that's coming in through the, that the Democrats are proposing is almost the thing that I see most worthwhile about it, is that they also want to talk about um, uh, changing the standard of qualified immunity. And this, this is a judicial standard that has permeated through the courts and in the laws. And so what it says is that um, officers have a certain kind of immunity against being, uh, not a certain kind, they have immunity from being charged for criminal acts or being found even civilly liable. Um, if it can't be shown that, um, that, if, that they breached policy. Right. But the problem with that is that there are other standards that you all well know, where if an officer says that they feared for their life, then they that actually that uh, that phrasing is what allows them to say that their use of force was justified. It's in this case with George Floyd, it was very difficult, you know, to for them to claim that, especially because it's been kind of a video. But there are hundreds of videos where I would tell you that it's the same situation where there is no threat, but it's this kind of like, I, I call them magic words, like a spell, like the moment that they say that they say them and they say those words and they will, and there's a narrative. I always say that there's only actually one police narrative is actually to say um, they fear for their lives, which would then um, trigger um, this path where legally they can claim that they were protected by qualified immunity. And that's why no legal cases succeed and prosecutors are very resistant to want to charge because in a criminal case, they have to meet a higher standard of, of proving that the police breached um, uh, or broke the law than they did in, say, a civil, civil case. And the most, common, the most common reforms that I've seen uh, presented locally um, throughout from what i've seen throughout the us is one the end of qualified immunity and two uh community review board uh, community review boards um are are there any others that that we should be aware of yeah well you know we have um uh, a police commission here in san francisco that reviews uh cases of police misconduct um, and in an administrative sense, in an employment sense, you know, whether you would, might be suspended or fired or, you know, get a, a note in your, in your file. And actually, it hasn't worked very well. And, I th and the most egregious example is that finally, 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 in the case of Luis Gongorapat, which is the Mayan uh, man whose family I support, um, the two officers, one of them, uh, Michael Malone, was... Uh, was was recommended by the Department of Police Accountability that he be suspended for 30 days. It has never happened. Not even a, a, a call for a suspension of somebody killing an, um, uh, another person. Sorry, of officers killing a, a civilian. And what happened in that case, and we only just found out now. I, this I mean, this happened in 2016, and we just found out mm -hmm. um, two weeks ago because of some very good investigative reporting 
is that this officer, because I kept on asking what happened to the suspension, this officer uh, who had come from another police department, I'm trying to find out what record he had there, he jumped ship from San Francisco police right before they were going to, um, the police commission was going to uh, recommend the suspension. So he resigns and then goes to work just up the road in Antioch Police Department without that on his record. So I think that this is when we talk about dismantling the police and it's really rethinking all these systems of police accountability also because part of the problem with police uh, brutality is that it comes hand-to-hand with police impunity. And we are fighting police impunity. But at the end of the day, we're just kind of like re- trying to re- reconsider what we want. Who should respond to public safety and public health issues? Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that's really striking moving from the U.S. to the U.K. is that there still are police here. Um, I, so like, I was kind of reading all these stats about like how many people are incarcerated in the U.S. and it's like 2.3 million. And then I was like, well, how many are in the UK? And do you want any guess how many people are in prison in the UK? Is it four figures? Uh, It's not four, it's five. It's 86,000. 86,000, right? I mean, fine, the UK is one-fifth the size of the US, but um, 2.3 million versus 86,000, it's like, it's. and trust me, British people are not uh, less criminal, right? It's like, if you've actually ever been like, downtown in Southampton when the pubs all close. It's, it actually is a bit of anarchy, but it's, it's obviously, there's different ways of kind of, um, you know, dealing with people. And the other thing is exactly what Adriana was saying happens. There are these people called welfare officers here and they're the ones who are downtown um, talking, what, what in the UK is called a rough sleeper, someone who's, who's homeless, but um, they're the ones who kind of intervene with, with rough sleepers or people with mental health problems or people with kind of substance abuse problems out in the city, like they respond to those kinds of calls. Uh, and the other thing is the police here don't, the average beat cop does not carry a gun, right? They're not, they, they have something called firearms officers, but they're called in for kind of emergencies, but the, your average cop doesn't, doesn't carry a gun in the UK, which is, you know, I think one of the big striking things. I think, and what you're talking about actually is uh, this moment in which uh, first of all, the police are less militarized, less um, gun-toting and, and, and trained to use lethal use of force in situations of conflict in Europe than they are here in the U.S. And that is for sure correct. Um, and that also leads to this, this, this humanitarian crisis of, of um, extrajudicial executions, which is the legal term for police just killing people uh, unjustifiedly. Uh, so it goes back to the demilitarization of police about what uh, what does it look like to stop funding, um, you know, this uh, intense amount of riot gear and uh, tear gas and and uh, and shields and uh, near tanks. And then you call in the National Guard is ridiculous when you have other models um, in Europe, uh, I would say where you realize that those, we can do differently. And I'm, I'm going to give a shout out right now to um, a Norwegian curler, Pia Trulsen. Because when I was in um, Finland and at the qualifying event, I actually had a good conversation with her. She is actually, um, I want to know exactly what uh, her title is, but she's also like a, a, a welfare um, 
worker in Norway who checks up on youth. And they have a really interesting system in Norway where they, and they don't criminalize the youth who get into legal problems. And it does has, have its own complications, but basically you have a lot of uh, social workers and that was her job that you check up on them. That Do they misbehave? Yes. Will some of them never really quite integrate in a more positive way? Possibly. But you just do not criminalize them. May you call the police? They do call the police, but they call them to kind of calm them down, to contain them, kind of like what I was, is kind of our wish when we think about a mental health crisis, when they're uh, breaking things, et cetera. But you don't, they, don't, uh, they don't shoot them. They don't uh, incarcerate them. And it's a different response, and it's very challenging perhaps in, in an American side to think about this because we're so used to calling the police for everything. But it would be the type of model that we're talking about when we talk about dismantling the police and start funding, you know, investing in other type of solutions. So how do we take what we've what what we are learning and apply it to curling? Um, you know, there I guess it's we have to start thinking about those obstacles that that you were talking about and kind of realize that other people are not going to have the, the obstacles that don't exist for us in terms of joining a curling community um, do exist for others, whether it's travel or the co- or the cost or you know any any number of things, right? Right, and and um, I would say there are different levels. There's the cost level where you're like, oh my god, three hundred dollars curling shoes. Uh, how do we figure out how to? <laughs> make those more accessible maybe there could be a, a little bit like ice skating rings where people can just like pick up a pair you know when they when they can come come in or donations uh from the club or just investment in the club for for specific people and it could even help uh new curlers in general right it's like the think about the the what blocks even a, a new curler with less resources from trying to stay with the sport. And it usually is the cost of a broom, the cost of a shoe, et cetera. No, the cost of a league. Like, you know, I, I did hear that. I, I did hear from um, that when we, we finally someday opened the, our dedicated ice over in Oakland that somebody told me, yeah, they're even talking about creating a, um, that the police is going, the Oakland uh, OPD is going to have um a team. I'm like, oh yeah, then I'm going to create the black and brown league. (laughs) (laughs) And that's going to be a good game. (laughs) But no, no, really. Like I would like to have a black and brown league. I want to have a, that's like, if you ask me, what do you like? Hey, give me a a schedule, which is easy for people usually working a couple of jobs that might have a kind of like a lower um, uh, league fee so that we can attract a series of of working class people to come in and just have as much fun as we always do in curling. And then boom stacking might look a little different, right? We might be talking about different things. Um, and it could be a welcoming environment where, where we create those, you know, just like you have the ladies league, right? Why don't we have that, that type of dates, set dates. And of course we think about the youth, but um, youth also need really supportive, um, safe environments. And I think the people who will be involved in that need to be, we need to educate ourselves with the help of people who already work with uh, inner city youth, if that's the project, 
um, about how how do we create those environments and then slowly kind of integrate the rest of our club members in these type of conversations. And why not? Like you do it in companies, we could have a series of conversations where we think about like what language do we use? And and there is a topic of intersectionality also of like not sometimes we not only <laughs> are really bad at talk about uh, uh really bad about talking about race but also about gender and other issues that we're just not conscious about them because we're not exposed to them ourselves you know depending on where we're coming from and at what mm. at what moment so it will be challenging for a lot of people it's not going to be comfortable but uh who cares i mean there's a good history there for for black and brown leagues like like basically in the 80s and 90s in canadian curling clubs um gay curlers the lgbt community set up separate leagues like from vancouver curling club to royals in toronto like, like all across canada and Part of the point was it was not comfortable in 1980s or 1990s to be out in a curling club, right? But that was a way you could have. Mm-hmm. But you, if you could, if you grew up curling, say in Saskatchewan and moved to Vancouver, um, it was a, it was a, pl- a way for you to connect with the gay community, feel comfortable being out, and still do the sport you loved, right? And I think in a lot of ways those leagues have really shaped how, in some ways, a lot of Canadian curling clubs are kind of more accepting of the LGBT community than they are of of other visible, of like other minority communities, if you will. Um, and so that, that, right. I think that's like a really good example of, of uh, how we could do something. How you generate inclusivity. And I actually think it's a great idea to think about how, what worked. Go talk, talk to elders in the community who were part of those movements or even young people today and say, what, what worked for you that made it really welcoming? Yeah. And and try to try to um, inform that with other issues about um, how we replicate in our everyday lives uh, issues of structural structural racism, and try to figure out new ways of thinking about it. No. Yeah. See, so you you talk about the 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 black and brown leagues, and this I'm gonna try I'm gonna try to f- phrase this as carefully as I can. And I also don't want to sound ignorant, but I am coming to it, coming at it from a place of ignorance. Um, You know, we want to be more inclusive. Why would having a separate league be better? Would it be better? Is it better just because just to help get people acclimated to coming into the sport rather than just saying, well, why don't we just make all of our leagues more inclusive from the, from the outset? Oh, no, I agree. Make all leagues more inclusive okay. from the outset. But why have a ladies league? True. You know, and, and it is because there are some shared experiences between um, people of mm-hmm. specific ethnicities that might make it uh, an environment in which you can really, you really kind of stretch out and express um, yourself within that community um, in a way that seems a little bit more, uh, inviting and safer and also just have your own space and claim that space, no, just like the ladies leagues or the, the gay spiels and, and, and just think about those spaces where that it's not only inviting, but it's welcome. And absolutely. Like if you have, and, and as we kind of move forward, if you have, um, new curlers coming in and you know how we all learn curling, Somebody took us in. I don't care who you are. Somebody took took you in and let you play for stones and mess up those guards. Mm-hmm. And so I think 
uh, we we need to be that welcoming to every curler. But but if we see people of color who have interest, welcome yeah. them into your team. Um, yeah, I bet. Yeah. <laughs> if if a curling club was looking at doing an outreach out an outreach event and wanted to bring in kids who were underserved or underprivileged and bring them into the curling club and do a learn to curl for them. What are some of the things that we need to think about that we wouldn't ne- necessarily think about right off the bat low other than donating our ice time or donating our time to teach the learn to curl? Are there certain things like, you know, those, those programs may be being a little stretched for cash and needing the gas money to get the kids there or, needing to, to provide a meal for them as well. Are, the, are those kind of things that we need to think about beyond just, yeah, here's the, here's the ice time. Here's the people who are going to teach the learn to curl. Let's invite, let's invite them in. You know, I think um, I have to, first of all, just like acknowledge I'm not an educator. And mm-hmm. I think our educators are the best position to kind of help us with these questions because my concern will be um, that, you give kids meals, you give them the shoes, you give them the, the ice time. And then as we're trying to teach them, we really mess it up. You know, because we start replicating ideas of um, prejudices. Mm-hmm. That, that kid is lazy. And, you know, that, that black kid's lazy. Uh, that brown kid, um, you know, is, 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 is not too smart. And so... We, my concern is that as a, as a club, as a community, that's why I started, we have to keep on thinking about this. And I think my curling analogy is like, let's say I ask you for help um, to improve my curling line. And then you sit there and you help me improve my curling line and you take an hour of your time and we talk about this and then, and then I don't practice. And then I come back to you and say, how can I improve my curling line? <laughs> You're going to get frustrated with me. So I think my greatest concern is like, how can we make sure that we keep on thinking about how we're communicating with these kids? And it might actually behoove us to um, invite the educators first. Believe me, they probably need a break and a break and uh, and a sport to relax and kick back in and, and, and they can help with some of that too, but maybe they don't want to even talk about it. Maybe they just want to throw rocks. So, <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I do think that the one, like the one place in society where diversity is um, built in is the public education system. Right. It's, I mean, I feel like even as a university instructor, one of the things I say to students all the time is this is one place where like, once you go off into your lives, you may end up, back in your bubbles, your suburbs, your churches, whatever, whatever like your normal affiliations are, but large public universities, especially large public high schools, like that just draws in people from that area. Now, obviously it's going to depend on the, the, the makeup's going to depend on the geography of where that school's located, but the logical place for a club to start is to reach out to the, the high schools in their area and start not junior programs. I think often junior programs end up being the kids of the people already in the club, but like a high school program where there's basically it's a, and make it fun and playing oriented as opposed to high performance. It's just like, here's two hours once a week, a little bit of instruction and then just go and throw rocks and have fun. And they're all there with their buddies. Um, and it kind of, you can kind of see how a high school will just kind of suck a, suck a group of kids in uh, to that. And maybe not 
enforce all the rules, maybe not enforce all of the typical, you know, Jonathan, we did a entire episode about etiquette, but maybe in those leagues, not enforce the etiquette or enforce the rules quite as strictly and just let the kids have fun. Yeah, I mean, it's kind I don't, of, I don't know, because you're, you are teaching this, but, but you are also trying to teach the sport. So if etiquette is important about it, yeah. we got we all got to learn to learn the sport and learn the etiquette. I think the etiquette matters, but I think it's also like having done a lot of junior coaching. I'm like, you learn, you learn to pick your battles. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, so, so shaking hands before and after a game. Absolutely. Um, calling out the cheating. Absolutely. Um, some of the other stuff where they're just, they're, they're not staying super still on the board. They're just goofing around. It's like they're, they're 13, 14, 15. You just kind of learn over time, like what, where, where the battles are. And if they get more competitive, then you just kind of drill them on where they, they need to be and how to handle that. But yeah, I agree. The emphasis has got to be funny. If it's, and I think all kids are going to be similar in that regard, right? It's, that's just teenagers. Right? It's like, <laughs> you know, one of our jokes with the coaches is, are they actually here to play or are they here to flirt? Right. Cause it's like, there's a lot of flirting going on between the, you know, same team, other team, whatever. It's just, uh, you know, but it's, it's appealing, right? They're, it's part of the fun is just, here's a, here's a fun activity to do. And we don't want to recreate school where it's the teacher always just telling them what's wrong. Right. It's, it's uh, hopefully a fun space, not, not necessarily a, a workspace. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and keep learning, keep listening, keep, stay humble. We're not going to get it right the first time, yeah. but we'll keep on trying. Yeah. I wonder, the other thing I want to talk about was um, like how curling covers diversity. And so this is the thing that's stuck in my craw for a long time. It's, it's, it's interesting to me that one of the best curlers in the world for the last decade has been Kevin Cooey. And almost nothing's made of the fact that he's First Nations, that he kind of grew up in the, in the, the with, he's like from the Gwich'in people from in uh, Northwest Territories. And then the, the, as near as I can find, there's only one story that Devin Haro did during the 2018 Olympics. And it's a, it's a really powerful one. So I encourage anyone to go Google it. And it's about his father, who was a residential school um, survivor. And so for people who aren't Canadian, I probably need to explain that a little bit. But the residential school system was set up by the Canadian government um, probably way back in the 19th century. But essentially, it was it was quite explicitly a policy of the Canadian government up until the 1970s to essentially um, force forcibly assimilate uh, Indigenous peoples into white culture. And so often what would happen is children be taken from their parents' home and sent to these residential schools even like thousands of kilometers away um, and separate from the family for a long period of time. Um, and there's like a lot of child abuse at these schools, a lot of kind of physical abuse, but it was also used as a way to strip they separate kids from their parents and strip them from their, um, strip them of their culture. And it, it led to a, a truth and reconciliation commission in Canada about a decade back. But that story, I've only seen it told once. And it, it, it's kind of striking to me that other forms of diversity in curling. And so, which I think is great. Like I'm not like, don't want to pit, but you know, like, so someone like John Epping, there's, there's several stories about him being a leading figure in the gay community or somebody like Dustin Kidby. The fact that he's out is, is celebrated and that's, that's fantastic. But it's just striking to me that here you've got the most prominent, or what, if not the most prominent, one of the, the three or four most prominent curlers in the sport. And that like his, his identity is almost never brought up and, and his history is not brought up. And I'm wondering Adriana, if you can kind of think about why curling almost erases race uh, 
in this way in terms of how it covers the high profile part of the sport. I guess my, my first instinct is to say that it's not curling, right? Yeah. Like we, we early on in the conversation, I talked about, um, there is something that, and I can, can relate to this experience as someone who, you know, I work really hard for my degree. Um, I work really hard for my degrees, I should say, and, and to be in a position where I was valued for my intellectual work. And so I think what happens at those moments is, and it, it, it has been a journey for me too, that you you try to um, you try to fly under the radar radar of the races of the of the people who are going to block your way, and it's something that I've come to terms terms through, and has is significantly the reason why I do all this anti police brutality work and, and stand by um, people less disadvantaged uh, less advantaged than myself. But I think what happens is that our uh, structurally racist societies are more will tend to want to accept people who are less different um, than the predominant um, mainstream culture, and so there's there's by not highlighting that aspect of his history, um, and it could be something that's changing. I think it was more common before than now, um, but it could be something that we are pushed to do to, to be integrated into different societies. And I cannot tell you how many times I get the comment where somebody meets me and I say, who are you? I'm like, I'm Mexican. Oh, you don't look Mexican. And it's very painful to me. Um, but it, what it's actually, what people are actually telling me is that you're not, uh, you're not Brown. You're not, you don't look undocumented. You don't look, um, like those other people. And so I, I think what happens to us when we see somebody who looks a lot more like us is that we tend to not question. And I, I wouldn't think it's just curling. Um, and then the other question is like, I would actually, um, I mean, he doesn't have to, but <laughs> if he ever did speak on this, I would be interested in what Kevin Coy uh, experience about this was. He as a top athlete also, and we saw this when we were talking about Kaepernick a moment ago. You, there's many ways in which sports also want you to not bring up any political, controversial political topics about yourself. And I, I think a lot of uh, top athletes are trained to do that, right? Um, so, so it is, it, it is a, a fear there of you, you're doing this thing that you love. And I, I really, really want to make sure that people don't understand this is, I'm talking about Kevin Coe. I'm talking about what I see in the world. No. <laughs> and I have, and I'm just like, I'm just one person talking and in, in my observations. I, I can't wait for all of the stick to sports comments that I'm going to get on Twitter once we post this episode, but I will, I, I will state unequivocally that this is far and away the most important discussion that we have had in the two plus years that we've been doing this is far like not even not even close that this is far and away the most important thing that we've done and and why do you think because we're 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 challenging our curling community we're challenging ourselves in terms of our 
our composition as a curling community, or why would you think that? Because we're we're getting uncomfortable, and I th- this is the first time that I've been nervous going into a recording that we've done, and it's because I knew that we were going to get into topics that for sometimes are, are tough to discuss, but we absolutely have to have those conversations. And I feel like that I, I feel so much better, you know, we're here at probably close to the end of our conversation and how much better I feel now than I felt going in, I think is telling about how much, how much we need to have these conversations. And the only way that we are going to change is if we right. make ourselves uncomfortable. Keep it awkward. No. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, I'm just telling you that I also felt awkward coming into it and not knowing exactly how it was going to go, but we have to keep on talking and we have to, and by keeping awkward, I mean, I need to keep on thinking about my own, uh, the ways I inter- in, have internalized racism in my life and how I can combat it. And when the more I do that, I will be able to engage with yourselves, with um, other uh, other other people in, around my community, and really try to do better to let them lead. You know, let let people of color lead yeah. in terms of where they want this conversation to go. Yeah, I think that's good. I think one thing I'm not trying to tie it back in. Ryan's always chastising me for my bad segues. <laughs> <laughs> Here's another bad segue, Ryan. Um, <laughs> But it, it's something, it's, 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 not, it's like a memory that popped up this weekend. So Kevin Martin now has a podcast and he brought on Rudy Ramsharan. Uh, and so this, this is probably a bit of curly. I don't even know if Ryan, do you, Ryan, do you know who Rudy Ramsharan is? Or yeah, you told me that uh, you, kind, you kind of talked about him uh, a couple of shows ago. Yeah. Or much, so he was basically the, he, he's basically the only visible minority to win a major curling championship. He played with Kevin Martin. In at least Canadian curling championship, but he played with Kevin Martin in late nineties and he was the second on the Martin team. Uh, he's, he's like, he's from Trinidad and Tobago originally, but his family moved to Canada when he was young. Uh, and I guess he knew Kevin Martin from the junior scene and somehow ended up on Kevin Martin's team and was, was obviously a very good curler to win the Briar. Um, and then he just, he played for about three years and then just faded away from the scene. Um, but I remember this like memory stuck in my head because in my junior club, Montreal West, there was basically the Aladdin brothers were the only two visible minorities in the club. And they were both juniors, maybe a few years younger than me. And I remember this, like we were watching the Briar and uh, it had to be like 96 or 97. And it, it, at this point in time, you have to understand because of the whole language issue, someone from Quebec does not cheer for Alberta, right? It's just like, it's like someone from Oklahoma cheering for Texas, Ryan, if you want the analogy. And, and we're sitting down and he's like, I'm cheering for Kevin Martin. And I was like, why? And he goes, well, Rudy Ramstrand's the only one who looks like me on TV. And I was like, oh, fair enough. And it, it, Kevin's gone on to talk about leaders in the sport. Like Kevin's gone on in, in Montreal. He's like president of the branch. He runs a, a curling fundraiser. He's like very active in the junior community. He's, he's like, I think past president of that club now. Like, thir- like this is like almost 30 years on now. But I, I've always, I was kind of thinking about that moment and wonder how important it was just to even have one person of color playing kind of on the national stage and how important that may have been for Kevin. He probably wasn't, didn't feel all that. He obviously stuck out in the Montreal West junior program back then. Um, so it's just a memory, but I, I think it, 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 the points that just, I think 
adding diversity is almost a virtual, like a virtuous circle, right? That it, it leads to more diversity. Agree. So, are there? I think maybe wrapping up. Do you, is there anything more you want to say about well anything in the world, but <laughs> either about race and curling or about um, the Black Lives Matter movement or about this moment in America? You know, I think maybe two um, positive thoughts. Um, or I, I also, you know, for starters, I wanted to suggest a title for your podcast. I I wanted to suggest that you call it "Take This Hammer." <laughs> and <laughs> and and like it's because it. of that song um which is a, a a labor song that that black convicts on you know on gang uh workforces would be um you know it, it comes from that from that history and um and it's it's Sung by Lead Belly, and it's called "Take This Hammer." But then this that song was was used to title a film, uh, a documentary in San Francisco more than fifty years ago, in which James Baldwin, um, the great writer, black writer, um, walks us through San Francisco fifty years ago. And I think it's worthy because that film could be in many other cities to understand that this has been going for a long, long time. So that's my first suggestion. And then I have a quote that I really, really love that we sing out when we're out in protest. And I want to share it with you. It's, it's a, a writing by Asata Shakur. She was a former member of the Black Liberation Army. And in her autobiography, she writes, it is our duty to fight for our freedom. It is our duty to win. We must love each other and support each other. We have nothing to lose but our chains. Adriana, thank you so much for agreeing to come on a curling podcast. Um, one, you have a lot more important things that you could be doing. and But I, but I think we have all benefited from, from our time together. I, I really can't thank you enough for doing this. We have nothing to lose but our chains. We're going <laughs> to do this together. <laughs> yeah. yeah, thank you so much, Adriana. It was a fantastic conversation. No, and thank you for the invitation. I'll talk to you soon again. Or see you yeah. better on the ice. <laughs> see you on the ice, yeah. Okay, see you guys. Be well. Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter. Black Lives Matter. Thank you all for listening to Rocks Across the Pond. We really do appreciate it. Like I said, I think that this was the most important episode that we've done, and I can't thank you enough for, for taking the time to listen to it. I think it's also important that this be an ongoing conversation. So we want to hear from you. We want to hear the ideas that your curling communities have to help make curling more inclusive. We can't thank Adriana enough for joining us. Um, like we said, she's a, she's a writer, she's a rule of law consultant, and she's an anti-police brutality activist who lives in San Francisco. You can reach her uh, on Twitter. She is Camarena Adriana. Um, you can also find her on Facebook at Adriana.Camarena, and you can read some of her writings at unsettlers.org. We also want to hear from you. You know, if you, like I said, this needs to be an ongoing conversation. So if you stumble upon this show, you know, it was recorded in June of 2020 and say you stumble upon this show in June of 2021 
you look through and you see that our topics and our guests continue to to not be as diverse as they should be, by all means, call us out on it. We can be reached by email at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter at Curling Podcast, and you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Rucks Across the Pond. Uh, once again, thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you again real soon.